0: On the moon, planet Earth is a beautiful sphere of blues, greens and swirling white clouds. It is a seemingly peaceful composition that holds within it everything, quite literally everything, all the people, places and stories of our existence. How can we decipher all those experiences, all those elements that distinguish us as human beings and how do we interpret the greatness of the natural world? the effects of climate change, and above all, how everything is
1: interconnected. We are using resources in a way that it doesn't take into account the future. And looking at Earth from space, this becomes apparent.
2: And as the moon moves away from us, the days on Earth are getting longer, and the moon is getting farther away. Biennale Milano,
0: Italy's foremost institution for design and contemporary culture, will be hosting its 23rd international exhibition next year in 2022. It is entitled Unknown Unknowns, and so this podcast will attempt to tackle some of these vast questions. Seeking perspectives rather than answers, our metaphorical vantage point giving us some distance and hopefully some clarity all from the moon.
3: We can't really fully and truly grasp the moon and understand it, even though it's just there every single night.
0: Using the tools and brains from the worlds of culture, design, science, philosophy, medicine and more besides, we'll be taking you on a journey through time, space and knowledge with me, David Pleasant. In this episode 5, we are going to reverse the telescope and instead of focusing our gaze on our home planet, we're going to stay on Earth and look out into space, taking this opportunity to look at our imaginary host, the Moon, and far beyond that too. What are we looking at when we look into the skies? What is myth and what is scientific fact? This episode is going to be the very definition of multidisciplinary. We'll be hearing from an astronaut and an astrophysicist, as well as an artist and a curator of photography. Our first guest occupies a place within a very select group of humans, those who have actually been into space. Italian astronaut Paolo Nespoli's first mission was in 2007, and in the following decade he clocked up many, many days spent at the International Space Station. Retired since 2019, Paolo spoke to me about this extraordinary experience, both from a physical and psychological point of view.
1: Okay, I'm recording. Three, two, one, mark. Paolo Nespoli, thank you very much for
0: joining us on this episode of From the Moon. My first question, and uh, it's the most important question. I think people who are listening would really like to grasp the feeling of being in space. And I know this is something that everyone must ask you, but the physical, the emotional, what were your impressions looking back at your many
1: days spent in, in space? Well, David, I I can look at my time in space and, uh, and say that it's uh, it's interesting how you know people and myself too think about going to space to space for uh, for several years and it starts out as an impossible dream and then little by little it becomes uh, more and more possible until uh, a point when uh, it becomes uh, uh, unavoidable which is kind of interesting so when you when you finally achieve this dream of or you're about to achieve this dream by sitting on a rocket that will kind of explode in a controlled manner and throw you in space, it's a very incredible moment. It's the achievement of of a dream. And then you know you you go to space. It doesn't take much actually to be in orbit. The point though as a professional astronaut is that you're not going to space just to sit around. You starts very, a very uh, long and uh, complex period of uh, um, work where you are a part of a complex system. You are a little cog that is spinning around and it has to spin at the right, at the right time, in the right manner to make sure that it spins so that it goes with the rest of the mechanism. And. Um, And it's actually incredible there because you are there working while at the same time you have feeling as a human being, as a person. And those are uh, very incredible because uh, you you feel or I felt I was part of this uh, incredible machinery that uh, has as a goal to further our knowledge and capabilities as a human race. And uh, at the same time, you are a person that is experimenting this completely new situation. Specifically, if you are in space on a space station, for example, or you are really experiencing this microgravity environment where there is no gravity or you don't feel the force of gravity, which means you are kind of floating around, Um, which is really strange because if at the beginning makes you... Really, not want to be there, you know. The body gives you nausea and kind of tells you this place is crazy, move away. In the other, you cannot, on the other side, you cannot really go away and you have to adapt to the situation. And when you finally let go and you try to get the best out of it, you actually discover that you lost a lot but you gain a lot, and uh, specifically I think the most astonishing thing that you gain is the fact that you lose uh, the um, continuous uh, reminders that gravity gives you on the fact that you have a body, so there is nothing that tells you you have a body you have a body, you have a body, so you float around and there are points where there are moments where you float and you are kind of a, an entity floating, it's not a body. It's, I would almost say it's a consciousness flying around and it's, it's an incredible feeling of lightness, of uh, freedom, of, uh, of all sorts of things that you cannot have here on Earth. And even more, this gets even more amplified if you go to the cupola, for example, and you look down and you see the earth passing under your feet. And it's absolutely incredible.
0: Paolo, that's amazing, you talking about the effects it has on your body and also consciousness. And similarly afterwards, um, I'm quite interested in, in the effects it might have on you when, when you come back from space. Does space have an impact on you long term, mentally and physically? Talk us through that, that process of returning back to planet Earth.
1: Well, if you stay in space long enough, uh, your body starts changing. And uh, there are a lot of changes that have to do with muscle atrophy, uh, with bone mineral loss, uh, with. Uh, perception of um, of uh, uh, high and low, uh, left and right, you know, the vestibular system, it's kind of uh, gets kind of dull in space. So when you when you come back, you have all sorts of, uh, of things that have to do with not having used anymore to have a <laughs> what I call an elephant laying on you, which is the gravity. Uh, it's it's very strong. We don't understand it. We don't feel it like this when we are here on Earth. But you come back from space and you are used to, you know, floating around like a feather and suddenly you're stuck to the ground and you cannot do anything. So there is a an initial part where you have to get used of all this uh, of all these constraints of, of being bound to walk on a floor. Um, I think you miss, I, I think I missed uh, a lot of this, uh, the first days, but, but again, I, I consciously choose not to miss what I don't have, but to look at what I have and explore it and get the best out of it. So when I was in space, I kind of push myself to explore microgravity and when i get back to earth i actually enjoy being again a human being where all the senses are again touched and uh, and uh, exercised uh, of course you cannot do that in space so uh, there are some changes i would say that in the in the first 2 3 weeks uh, most of the body goes back to normal Uh, There will be certain things that you will carry for the rest of your life, like uh, um, the bone loss that you had in space probably will not come back. The amount of uh, additional radiation that you have uh, absorbed uh, because you were out of the atmosphere also will stay with you. Uh, But the rest will will more or less go back uh, to normal from a physical point of view, from a psychological point of view. I think uh, you have uh, achieved, or I have, I feel I have achieved an impossible goal, which gives me some psychological strength. And uh, on the other hand, uh, I I actually felt that this was one of the times in my life where I used my life effectively, efficiently, uh, for you know, achieving a personal goal, but also for contributing to advancement of science. And it might sound corny, uh, but I think it's it's something that it's very important. And uh, and I'm grateful for uh, having been able to to do that. Uh, that's
0: that's interesting because you lead me on to my two um, other questions looking at astronauts. And I mean, basically, you're, you're in a very uh, small group of human beings just a few in billions of us so you're kind of a different category of human being in many ways um, a kind of lonely position but are you saying that perhaps the achievements and and the research and all that work that you uh, achieved does that make it less lonely is that one way of looking at it
1: well i uh, i i was looking at it from a personal point of view from if i have to look back at my life and uh, and uh kind of listed at things that I've done where I really say I did use my time on Earth efficiently. The time that I spent out of Earth in space, it's one of those periods. It's one of those periods where where there's a pinnacle of, uh, of all my uh, experience. So all I wanted to do and the fact that I did feel I have contributed to, to i have contributed uh, with, a, with an essential contribution to to life uh, or to the continuation of uh, of our life as a species in this on this planet and even outside of the planet and, and maybe if we go back metaphorically back into space and back into you in
0: orbit maybe go to some of the technological engineering achievements that you you're talking about maybe in some detail for the listener What are some of those evolving challenges that you have to overcome in space? And and practically, what what is the scientific research? What does that involve?
1: Give us a few examples. Yes, I would uh, start from the fact that uh, the space station is itself a technological technological marvel, uh, meaning that we need to think this is an environment this is a house laboratory that it's outside of the earth which means that in principle it has to contain all the all the things that make our life possible on earth and it's a it's it's a technological challenge uh, and by building this challenge by the way we try to build it uh, imitating uh, nature, which, uh, which essentially during the, the, the thousand or millions of years has, has found the best way of doing everything. And we are doing it, we are trying to do it in space. Um, we are trying to understand how our, our human uh, interaction with the environment, in this case of the space station, can be done in a very effective way. And, and, and so as an engineer, when I look at the way we have uh, built uh, the system to, for example, utilize water, purifying it, um, you, know, or, or handling uh, the atmosphere inside the space station, I really think this is a, an incredible achievement that'll allow us to live in space, but will allow us also to learn how to better, a deal or, or um, interface with uh, nature on earth? Paolo, one, one final uh, question.
0: I was reading that you, you have recently said that the planet obviously needs to be cleaned and there needs to be conditions of harmony between us and nature. And in order to do this, optimism is not always Helpful. That was an interesting thing for me to hear. Uh, one thinks of astronauts as being, you know, about the most optimistic, optimists, the biggest optimists around. You say that actually that can be an obstacle sometimes. Could you explain that to me a little bit more?
1: Well, I would say that uh, it's out of question that from the vantage point of space, when you look down at Earth, uh, you we can see, or you can see the fact that we as human beings have are everywhere in the planet, and we have kind of taken control on this planet. Now, the problem is that uh, we, we do not think, I mean, we think that we need to live in peace with nature, uh, but at the same time we are also not uh, fearful on taking whatever resources we need and want uh, from nature without thinking that we need to have a way to to let nature taking care of uh, of the byproducts that we do when we do that and uh, and so we are kind of using resources in a way that uh, that that it doesn't take into account the future and and looking at earth from space this becomes uh, apparent uh, we do we do things on earth in a way that we don't take care of our, or we seldom take care of our impact, global impact, and and this is something that uh, we need to start doing, uh, because you know we can do whatever we want in our little garden around our house, and we think that everything that we do stays there, but it's not exactly like that, and uh, and so we need to take um, consideration or consider. We need to consider what, uh, what we are doing at global level. Um, it's, uh, it's out of question that uh, the planet uh, Earth, it's kind of strong. Uh, nevertheless, we, we look at it from the sky and we think it's fragile. The fact is that the Earth itself is kind of strong. It's a piece of dirt. And there's not much you can do to a piece of dirt, you know, you can burn everything, destroy everything. What will happen is that we as human beings, what will happen is that life will disappear from this uh, planet, but the Earth will not go anywhere. And by the way, if you look at the life of Earth, and you compare it to our presence on Earth, we see that we are a really small fraction of the life on Earth. So if we can do anything we want, and most likely in a few you know, million years, which for us it's an impossible long amount of time, but for Earth is actually not that much, and, uh, and Earth can redo everything from scratch. The point is that we might not be here. So we need to be careful on what we are doing. We need to be careful to find ways to live, uh, to, to live together with the planet and not taking over it without considering uh, all the consequences.
0: That was Italian astronaut there, Paolo Nespoli. Despite our efforts on this episode to look into the night sky, as Paolo so evocatively touched on there, exploration is so frequently a process of looking at and understanding our own planet and our species rather than the workings of outer space. However, this is something our next guest should be able to help us with. Dr Catherine, or Katie Mack, is a theoretical astrophysicist who studies a range of questions in cosmology. That is, the study of the universe from beginning to end. And lately, Dr Mack, her handle is AstroKaty on Twitter, has been going about investigating the final stages of the universe with her 2020 book entitled The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking. We will discuss this with Astro Katie in the next episode, but first of all, she gave me a quick lesson in astronomy. I wanted to know exactly how to start when looking into the night sky.
2: My name is Katie Mack. I'm a theoretical astrophysicist. I'm based at North Carolina State University, where I'm an assistant professor of physics and a member of the Leadership in Public Science cluster. So when you look up into the night sky, you will see stars and some planets. And if you're in a really dark space, a dark part of the world, you'll see the Milky Way. Now, what you're actually looking at there, the stars that you see are stars that are part of our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy is a disk of stars and gas and dust and black holes and all sorts of things like that. Um, It looks like a sort of spiral galaxy, like you would see from Hubble Space Telescope images and we are somewhere near the edge of that spiral galaxy. So when we look up into the sky and we see a sort of white uh, path across the sky, this Milky Way, this little little bit of brightness um, in, a, in a stripe across the sky, that's because we're inside the disk and we're looking through a part of the disk. And depending on where you are in the world, you might be looking through the edge of the disk, you might be looking more toward the center of the disk, But we are inside this flat disk looking through it. And that's why we see that stripe of stars. But we see stars in other parts of the sky. And those are also stars in our Milky Way because the disk is not completely flat. There are, uh, you know, it has some thickness to it. And so there are stars around us in our part of the disk. And so we see those stars uh, when we look out into the night sky. There are some stars that are above and below the disk and moving around through, through the galaxy. And so the stars that we see are, are usually not more than sort of thousands of light years away, meaning that they the light can take thousands of years to get to us. Most of them are much closer, you know, tens or, or hundreds of light years away. Um, and we also see planets now, um, There are only a few planets that we can generally see with the naked eye. Uh, We can see Venus, uh, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Those are the bright ones uh, when you look out into the night sky. And the way you can tell the difference between seeing a planet and seeing a star is they both look like a little point of light. But if you sort of watch for a while carefully, you'll see that the stars twinkle and the planets don't. That's because the planets are a little bit wider from our perspective. They don't look like single points of light to our perspective, although they do to the naked eye, but um, technically they're a little bit bigger. And that means that when the atmosphere sort of wobbles the the air around, it doesn't get moved around quite as much uh, in the perspective of looking at that little dot. And so they, they don't twinkle quite as much, quite as much if the, if the atmosphere is, you know, sort of wavy,
0: so okay so we're looking we look out for, for a slightly duller twinkle that's that's a planet
2: yeah. I mean yeah if, if it's if the atmosphere is very clear it won't twinkle at all it'll just be a, a single point of light if, if there's a lot of sort of water vapor in the air then then you might get a little bit of shimmering but but the star will really twinkle and the and the planet will not um, so we can see these planets and these planets are all kind of along a line through the sky uh, called the ecliptic plane that's the plane of the of the solar system. So the solar system is, you know, the sun and the planets orbiting it. Those are all in a disk as well. And is not lined up with the Milky Way. So, it's, But they're about 60 degrees off of each other. So you'll see the stripe across the sky, which is the Milky Way. And then you might see a few planets. And if you look, those planets will be in a line across the sky in a different part of the sky. And the moon might also be in that line if, if the moon is up.
0: So great. The stars, uh, we're looking at stars and planets and you've fantastically explained to us some of the differences between that how we can differentiate obviously two major things that we see uh, without even trying is the sun and the moon can you tell us a little bit about the alignment of those two and uh, how they work you know e- eclipses yeah. lunar eclipses solar eclipses can you give us a little brief introduction to that
2: sure sure so i mentioned that we are in the the solar system, which is aligned as a sort of disk. So all the, the planets are all orbiting in the same plane, more or less around the sun. And uh, the moon is orbiting in about the same plane as well. Not exactly, but pretty close <clears throat> around us. And so there are times when the moon will be between us and the sun, or we will be between the moon and the sun. So as the moon is going around us, it can be on the, on the same side as the sun or the opposite side as the sun. And when those alignments occur, you get a an eclipse. Um, and the there are two kinds of eclipses that we see. Uh, there's lunar eclipses. Those are when the sun, the moon is behind the Earth, uh, and our our shadow is cast on it. So. If the, if the Earth is between the, the Sun and the Moon, then the, the Earth casts a shadow in the direction of the Moon, and, and the Moon ends up looking dark or, or, or sort of reddish because of the way the light filters through the atmosphere of the Earth. And then the solar eclipse is when the Moon is between us and the Sun, and the Moon blocks out the light from the Sun. And there's this very strange coincidence, which is that from our perspective standing on Earth the size of the moon and the sun in the sky, how big they look to us, is the same. Pretty much exactly the same. And uh, that means that when the moon does pass in front of the sun, uh, from our perspective, um, if the alignment is just right, then it perfectly blocks out the light of the sun. So perfectly that the, the whole disk of the sun is blocked out, and you can, and you can see the, uh, the sort of atmosphere of the sun, this wavy corona uh, of little wispy, uh, atmospheric light coming off of uh, the edges of the sun, and so that makes this this beautiful effect of a sort of dark circle with with wavy light around it that you that you see in pictures of a of a solar eclipse, or if you've been lucky enough to see one with your own eyes, it's a it's a very striking moment to to see that in the sky, um, and we don't have any explanation for. That alignment being perfect, that that um, I mean, the alignment is is because of how the how these things formed in the solar system. But the the size comparison being perfect, we we don't have a, a, an explanation for that. That seems to just be a coincidence. There are there are a few things that make it a little bit more likely um, than not, in the sense that. We think that it's very helpful for the stability of life on Earth for there to be a large moon. It, it sort of stabilizes the orbit of the, of the Earth, the tilt of the Earth. And, and so that makes the seasons more regular. And we think that that's helpful for life on Earth. So maybe maybe if you are looking for you know life on other planets, maybe you would say, well, a planet that has a large moon might be a little bit more likely to have life. So it shouldn't be too surprising that the moon is large. Um, but but the exact size uh, you know on, in the sky of the sun there's not, there's not really um, that just seems to be chance, but it's a beautiful coincidence.:
0: Yeah, kind of an, one of those one in a, a billion kind of logistically almost impossible things that, that happen to make life possible.
2: Well, you know it's one of those things that it might be it might be rare, but we are only one uh, planetary system. It may be that uh, if you had dozens and dozens of planetary systems, this might only happen once. But here we are. We are on this one. We don't know what the, what the distribution is for other planets and their moons. Um, so, you know, there's uh, we can't say a whole lot about it. But, um, but it, I, I do feel lucky to be on a planet where we can see that, that beautiful uh, event.
0: That event, and also um, we we have the presence of the moon, and, and kind of throughout this whole series, we've been discussing what an important presence
2: that is. I might I might say one more thing about that, which is that um, the moon is actually leaving us. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. It is
0: that's that's a sad de- sad statement. Tell us about that. <laughs> I was go- uh, we're going to talk to you about I- the end of the universe. I didn't think we'd be talking about uh, the departure of the moon. T- tell us more.
2: So the moon is moving away from the Earth. The orbit is getting wider over time. So, so in the past, the moon was a little bit closer to us, um, and also the the days on Earth were shorter. And as the moon moves away from us, the days of on Earth are getting longer, and the moon is getting farther away. And this is all because of the way the orbits interact with each other and the tidal forces interact. It's it's physics. It's it's understandable. But what it means is that over time, it will become less common for total solar eclipses to happen such that the moon perfectly blocks out the sun. We'll have more annular eclipses, which is where the moon uh, is a little bit closer to us in its orbit. And we do have these now where the orbit is a little bit elliptical, so sometimes it's a little closer, it looks a little bit smaller in the sky than the than the sun. And then you can, when it lines up, there's a little ring of, of light around the moon. Those will become more common. So, so the moon is... Um, the moon is moving farther away from us, so it'll look a little bit smaller in the sky. And so, total solar eclipses are, are um, a, a limited time offer; <laughs> they they will not be possible uh, for the entire life of of the Earth and the, and the Sun. The um, the or the Earth and the Moon. I mean, um, the the Earth is is moving away by something like uh, an, an inch or an inch and a half per year. So it's it's moving. Just, just, just a little bit over time.
0: So get those um, eclipses in while while we still can. Is what you're saying, basically.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it won't. Um, yeah, it won't. Uh, it won't fully leave um, before the Earth is destroyed <laughs> by the the changes in the Sun, anyway. But it will get farther away, and uh, and our days will will also get longer as a, as a result of that.
0: That was theoretical astrophysicist Dr. Katie Mack, or astro Katie for short. We'll be hearing more from her again on the next episode, when we'll be getting rather philosophical on From the Moon. Indeed, we'll be discussing the end of everything, including how Katie predicts the universe will finish. As we heard from Katie before, there are certain things we should look out for when we look into the night sky if we want to attempt to understand the universe. The sun and moon, however, are both unavoidable and glaringly obvious to us. They are hugely more immediate, physically and culturally speaking. The moon's presence in human culture is an elusive one from the relationship between the lunar world and altered mental states of being, something that in the past might have been called lunacy from the Latin luna, to deep and almost mystical connections between the moon and the feminine. To talk us through just a few of these fascinating lunar associations, we have Paris-based choreographer, artist and author Ivana Muller we'll also be hearing some excerpts of Claude Debussy's Claire de Lune, or Moonlight Suite, which was composed in 1905.
3: There is something very interesting about um, the fact that, uh, well, Moon is always there. You know, it's one of the two celestial bodies that you can always see, like the Sun and the Moon, not, uh, the others are not visible with the bare eye. And it has been there actually for uh, uh, quite a long time. <laughs> but what is interesting to me about the, um, the presence of the moon is that actually the moon is a piece of earth and it's, it's kind of born out of the collision of the earth and this meteorite that is called Thea, that was called Theia and that actually like struck the earth, you know, and from that moment uh, there was this dust or the cloud of dust that surrounded the earth as a kind of a ring. And then with the condensation of the dust, the, the moon uh, uh, has arised. And the fact is that very often, you know, we say we call the moon like the sister moon because it's it's kind of the sister of the earth. And I would even think of it's, it's a kind of earth's child also uh, in a strange sort of way if we want to use metaphor and think about it. Uh, and so what is, uh, what is very interesting about it is that uh, it is there and from the moment it was there, it actually slowed down the earth. So the earth was turning much faster uh, before. Like we are also turning much faster when we don't have kids yet, you know, like we are much more sort of going out and stuff. And once the, that kind of um, a fixed point that is always there is, uh, is there, <laughs> uh, everything kind of slows down a little bit. But actually it kind of slowed down the earth it tamed its the the rhythm of the turning, but it it also provoked the seasons, and actually made a condition for this uh, you know what you call prebiotic soup, uh, the kind of uh, agency from which the life uh, has uh, arisen, um, and that is all connected with the tides. You see what I mean? That's a, um, because the tides were actually molding the uh, the rocks and. the... Um, uh, the, the the pieces of earth that were close to the water, there were those uh, uh, spaces where there were sometimes dry, sometimes wet, and then in this sort of uh, warmed uh, uh, kind of uh, pockets of water, there is also different organisms that started to to emerge. So I think it's quite beautiful with this idea of you know how life is created and how Earth uh, and Moon are permanently connected how they are very interdependent what is very interesting about what I told you also is that how moon is influencing different narratives that we can have about the relation to nature and that is something that uh, I've been using a lot in my work let's say um, the narratives the metaphors the kind of um, uh, let's say stories that are on the edge of Truth, or I mean, or actually, who are that, that are questioning what is the notion of the truth, or like, let's say, the edge between the science and some more intuitive, intuitively grasped ideas about how the world tur- tour- turns and how everything uh, around us exists. Uh, and I think that, like, we can say that the moon is definitely one of those places where people had a lot of questions and, uh, things that could not be, uh, explained, you know, for example, all those, you, you know, that there is all those, um, ideas and also traditions about moon being, uh, uh, like especially full, full moon being the kind of mystical times, uh, where special things were happening. You also have some kind of, you know, uh, even in the language, the, 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 the expressions about the moon, but also the word lunatic comes actually from Luna, which is the goddess of the moon. Uh, uh, And actually there's this whole idea that moon influences how we think, how we behave, uh, all, all sorts of uh, emotional impacts etc and what I think it's very interesting how let's say from different positions uh, people try to explain that so you would have scientists that will say well that's absolutely not possible because the the uh, gravitational force that comes from the moon it's not strong enough to influence the water in the body of the human because the idea is you know that uh, humans have 80. They are made 80 uh, percent out of water, and also they say that um, the human brain is the the moist organ. You know, the most uh, wet organ <laughs> in the in human body. So, in that, if you follow that line of thinking, you could say that the moon is influencing also, you know, how we think. But uh, scientists say that's not possible. Um, And it's interesting in a way how, even though there are no explanations about it, but people still believe that. So I think that what is very interesting here is how metaphors and narratives create beliefs and how actually they inspire some kind of imagination that is shared uh, and that is cultural.
0: Now, Ivana Muller touches on another association that the moon has had in different historical and cultural contexts. That is, the moon's connection to femininity and to women's bodies.
3: There's like, a, you know, it's this cycle of the moon, which is like uh, apparently 27 uh, days, 8 hours uh, and 43 minutes or something like that. I mean, it's not as precise, precise but there's, let's say, 28 days, which is also the menstrual cycle of a woman. Um, and uh, there's also another kind of issue that for many years, like different sorts of cultures strongly believed that that's, uh, these two cycles are connected. Apparently there's um, some people say like, why, um, why actually uh, women's cycle kind of, you know, re- respond to the full moon is that uh, they were basically hunting uh, at a certain uh, in the, in the full moon period, uh, because f- women were hunting also, apparently it's not only, you know, this kind of, uh, paradigm of men going to hunt and women like, you I know, picking berries or something, which is more like a 50s America story than, uh, <laughs> than, uh, than maybe what happened in the history. Uh, yeah. Uh, also, I think there is something interesting about the, this different when we talk about these different states and how uh, uh, of, of mind and of imagination and how moon can influence that. This kind of whole idea about insomnia. Uh, and this is related to the fact that before, you know, like if there, there was no, there was much less uh, artificial lightning uh, when the moon was full there was a lot of light and people could not sleep in in fact how this sleep deprivation uh, functions as a as a a sort of ivresse i don't know how is it the word in english it's the drunkness but it's not really so
0: there's the 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 sort of um yes. the inebriation the notion of the moon bringing on this kind of uh, other self
3: which yeah. comes close so if the moon brings this other self this kind of unknown mystical magical self you know and it's also related for me to this idea of the other uh, connected to the story i told you about how moon was created uh, out of the earth so that, that, that this constant pulling, you know, of the other that is present somewhere there, it's very interesting for me. And I think this tension was very much worked uh, through the mythologies, through the folklore. And I think even today, I mean, it's uh, w- the today when we are also starting to doubt the, the capacity of only one paradigm to explain us the truth, you know, I mean, we can say the science uh, can have, let's say, the idea of truth based on facts. But on the other hand, there is a lot of things that are kind of scientifically uh, difficult to prove, but they still somehow change you or change the world. What is interesting is this, how moon is uh, related to the time. So as I told you, it first slowed down the Earth. So it kind of, it's, it slowed the, the rotational pace and it gave the Earth the seasons and all that. But it also, it shaped our notion of a a month, you know, and also, um, uh, you know, it gave us some kind of sense of a day uh, as well. Uh, And so long, long before we had clocks and everything, we we really could relate to it, you know, as a a permanent uh, uh, presence. But what I wanted to tell you as an anecdote is that... um, You know that people uh, who make violins and all the other instruments out of wood, they're actually following the the, uh, lunar circles uh, in order to cut the wood in a good moment. Because there is, uh, I think, around the full moon, there is more worms inside of um, of the wood and uh, they are looking for the for the wood that is absolutely having no parasites inside, because if you have holes, even very small holes inside of the structure of the wood, that wood will not be uh, suitable to make a good musical instrument. So still today they are they are kind of cutting woods at a, a precise moments in time uh, connected to the moon. I think this is beautiful because it kind of it influences also the music, you know. Uh, <laughs> That is being made uh, to that. and and this is interesting. Well, uh, also connected to, to what I was telling you about this interdependence of uh, of different elements in nature and how we are actually you know. So it's not only agriculture, but it's even in how we create musical instruments.
0: It seems like if there's one um, kind of theme that we're getting from all these all these instances where where the moon kind of offers a different answer to. Uh, what we think of as kind of perceived knowledge or facts, if you like, there's always kind of like an alternative. The moon always offers some sort of alternative vision or alternative idea about how the world is or could be, or maybe we're basically talking about mysticism and and so on. It does seem to have that pull. We always want to draw that from the moon, some sort of uh, alternative reality, as it were. It, do you think that's something that we could maybe conclude that that's what the moon offers us and, and will always offer us.
3: Yes, I mean, I think so. And I, I think that if we connect it, let's say, because you asked me how I could connect it, this with my artistic practice in general or in particular. And I think this offering the other kind of views or other kind of possibilities to understand the world It's something that is fundamental in artistic practice and in being an artist, you know. And I think what what, the fact that we can't really fully and truly grasp the moon and understand it, even though it's just there every single night, more or less, I think it goes to show that this process of trying to understand the invisible, the ungraspable, the mystical, will always keep on inspiring us as humans.
0: That was choreographer, artist and author Ivana Muller there taking me through some of the many cultural, mythological and even mystical associations that the moon has always had for us. Very much staying on this subject of looking at the moon, our next guest, Mia Feynman of New York's Museum of Metropolitan Art, helps us to venture into how, rather than simply staring, human beings surprisingly recently started to visualise and ultimately capture what they saw in the night sky.
4: I'm Mia Feynman and I'm a curator of photography at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York.
0: Why I wanted to speak to you, Mia, is you've become something of an expert, even though photography is your area of expertise. Over the course of curating a very large exhibition in 2019, you became something of an expert on the moon, or visualising the moon anyway. So kind of since the beginning of their existence, humans have always stared up at the moon. But can you kind of chart um, how they've gone about representing the moon visually?
4: Well, um, from the beginning of time, uh, uh, people have represented the moon. But uh, at, it, at first, it was usually in the form of uh, some type of lunar deity. Uh, so there would be a um, uh, each, each, every culture on Earth um, had, a, you know, a different deity that it associated with the moon. Um, whether it was um, Diana in ancient Greece or Chang'e in uh, in China, um, and so typically the moon would be represented either in human or animal form, as opposed to um, as a disk or planet in the sky. It wasn't there have were, there were been a few representations of the moon so you know as an you know abstracted disc but it really wasn't until the early 17th century with the invention of the telescope that people started representing the moon um, as it appears uh, as a planet um, and that was a, a huge transformative moment in the history of Visual, in visual history, uh, history of images, uh, because suddenly people started seeing this glowing orb in the sky as something different, as a, a place that, that could be traveled to, as, an, as a planet that's like our own planet. Um, and it, there was, it was a completely new conception of what the moon was.
0: So almost this is kind of process of demystification of the moon happened at that point. People understood it better with with a telescope. You're saying.
4: Well, in in some ways, yes. I uh, mean, people began to understand that this the moon had a landscape, um, that it had mountains and valleys and and craggy hills that were very much like those on planet Earth. Uh, it looked kind of like a desert. Uh, but there's always a mystery associated with the moon because there's always a side of the moon that we can't see There's the far side um, and that you know that remained a mystery and so even though the moon was demystified in a way the more and more visual representations of it began to make people curious about what else there was there to discover
0: and then kind of if we're kind of going the timeline moves on and uh, we get to the the dawn of, of photography That, again, changed everything and people understood the moon even more than perhaps with a telescope. And is that, can you explain to me, is that just because photography was able to be seen and and, uh, appreciated by so many more people than just the few astronomers who would have a telescope? Is that why there was that transformative moment with photography?
4: Well, when people first started photographing the moon, in the 1840s, shortly after the invention of photography, it was very difficult to make an adequate image of the moon uh, through through with a camera through a telescope. And so, uh, for many years, um, although people were photographing the moon, um, the images really weren't as uh, as good, as compelling, or clear as as hand drawn images. So, hand drawn images continued to be very important. Um, really. Up until up until the space age, uh, when uh, when people started scientists, you know, created um, rockets that could carry cameras um, out of the Earth's atmosphere to make photographs of the moon uh, from much uh, a much closer range. Um, so, you know, in a way, it was, it was exciting for people to see photographs of the moon. It was exciting that, um, the, you know, that you could, you know, see something that, that you know, was real and not filtered through, uh, you know, a human hand and a human eye. But at the same time, um, it, you know, these images really weren't um, that clear or that sharp until uh, the 1960s. And then, and then that really changed things.
0: And it's kind of interesting on on an amateur level. Uh, I always think it's it's kind of famously difficult to photograph the moon, <laughs> even now. So so it's kind of it's interesting that there's a kind of uh, history of that uh, incipherable nature of the moon. So then, kind of, if we uh, look look at the space age that y- you mentioned there, how did imaging or visualizing the moon progress in that uh, era? And and, and what impact did it have on visual culture as a whole, would you say?
4: In the early 60s, uh, coming out of the Cold War, um, the US and the Soviet Union were competing to send a human being to the moon. Um, And uh, the photography of the moon was Basically to both sides were trying to understand the geography of this of our satellite in order to figure out how to land a rocket on the moon um, and so both the u s and the USSR uh, were sending up unmanned rockets equipped with cameras that would uh, uh, basically first they would just uh, crash into the moon, um, and those are called hard landing uh, uh, spaceships, and they would snap a few pictures of the moon right before crashing into it and beam them back to Earth. Um, then uh, the next stage of technology were soft landing spacecraft um, where they could actually uh, land the spacecraft on the moon and photograph uh, the, the landscape uh, from there. Um, and then um, finally um, they started sending uh, manned spacecraft uh, crew we call them crude uh, because um, it's a non-sexist language that's um, uh, preferred now um, and so they send, started sent but they, but nevertheless all the astronauts were male at that time um, they started sending crude spacecraft and um, the astronauts themselves were um, had cameras in you know uh, in their spacecraft and they were all very well trained in photography that was part of uh, NASA's program, um, and as well as the Soviets, and they began to photograph um, out of the spaceship window, um, and this is you know before right before, leading up to the moon landing. Um, but interestingly, uh, what interested the astronauts as well as the general public who are looking at these images much more than the moon were the photographs of Earth taken from space. Um, and this was this was really um, the sort of these were the groundbreaking images of the 1960s. Uh, the you know the um, the one called Earthrise, um, which was taken uh, by the Ast- American astronaut Bill Anders um, in 1968, um, which shows you know this blue planet against the dark void of space, um, really had a tremendous impact on uh, the ideas of environmentalism and of of preserving this planet, which is so unique in our solar system as a place that's blue and green and, and colorful. And it was the fact that it was a color photograph, as opposed to black and white images that had been taken before, that really brought home the impact of seeing the Earth against the darkness of space
0: that was curator of photography at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, Mia Feynman. It seems clear that again, when trying to look at the Moon and outer space beyond, we as humans yearn to look back to planet Earth, to our home, exactly as our first guest, astronaut Paolo Nespoli, described. Maybe this need to centre ourselves, to belong and to connect to our own environment is, at its heart, a part of being human. To end the episode, however, we will keep trying to look far out beyond the Earth's own atmosphere and to the Moon and much farther afield. And we'll try to stay grounded in science, although, as Dr James Carpenter of the European Space Agency reveals, space exploration is so often as much about geopolitics as it is about scientific research.
5: So the 1960s and 70s, if you like, was a golden age for lunar exploration. It was the first time that humans have been able to to leave our own planet and go to another celestial body. So then we had, uh, first of all, the the uncrewed landings from the Soviet Union um, and then a number of missions from both the Soviet Union and the United States to observe from orbit and then to land on the surface to show that it could be done. And then culminating in, in the pinnacle of this period, which was the Apollo program, and the, the first and only time in history that humans have ever set foot on another planetary body. And although this wasn't a program that was driven by science, it also completely transformed our understanding of our place in the universe about the history of our own planet and its its place within the, the broader solar system through the samples that came back and the science that was done. <clears throat> Since the... The Apollo ended there was this sort of long hiatus of, of a couple of decades when not a lot was happening on the moon and then that started to change around the 2000s with um, a couple of new missions so there was SMART-1 which was an orbiter that came from the European Space Agency there were also missions from, uh, from the US, from India, from uh, Japan um, and then from, from China so more and more missions going to orbit around the Moon and exploring from above. And what they did is gave us, for the first time, a really a global view of the Moon. And one of the things it showed us is that what we'd explored on the surface was really a tiny fragment of this very large area and really only gave us a, an inkling of what the Moon was about and what it had to tell us about the, the history of our own planet and the solar system. So then we had the first landings back on the surface with the uh, Chinese uh, Chenge 3 and Chenge 4 missions. Um, uh, and now we're looking forward to a, a really a new era where what's coming is, is quite something. We have uh, robotic missions um, planned from the the US, from China, from India, from Japan. Uh, Europe is engaged very much in this international endeavor um, through its role in the Gateway, which is a, a new a crewed platform that will orbit in the vicinity of the moon and provide a key element in an international lunar surface exploration plan with humans and robots working together. And in the US, this is driven very much by the Artemis program, um, and we're now working in Europe on our contributions to this. So we can expect something very exciting to happen. What's going to happen for the first time is an international program of lunar exploration with uh, lots of different countries working together.
0: So that's interesting because you kind of bring me to my next question as to what might be the motivations for lunar exploration. You mentioned back when the Apollo landings took place, Uh, There was a lot more going on than just science in terms of motivations, nominally geopolitics. It was, after all, the height of the Cold War. But can we see the current kind of lunar renaissance as being much more Uh, science-based? Or is there still a fair amount of geopolitics in the international collaborations that you mentioned? So is it more of a scientific renaissance or not, would you say? There's a bit
5: of both. I don't think you can separate exploration and politics I mean, they are intricately linked together and they always have been wherever you are going to explore. It's certainly true to say that we understand better than ever that our understanding of the solar system, everything that we know about the history of the solar system, about the, the planets, evolution of planets is anchored in work that was done on the moon. Um, around the area of the Apollo and with the samples that came back, which are still being used today by laboratories around the world to produce, to do cutting edge research. but what we also understand is that, that we 've been to this tiny area, and that area really doesn 't represent the moon it 's really quite a unique place geologically speaking that we 've been to on the moon and so if we want to understand um, the moon as a whole, we have to go to new places we 've also started to understand better the um, potential application of moon for other science so for example if you wanted to explore the cosmic dark ages, it's this very early epoch in the history of the universe, you have to look at long wavelength radio. And the only place in the solar system you go to look at long, wave radio, long wavelength radio um, and, and to see that without the Earth in view is on the far side of the moon. So these are examples of, of ways that we understand that the moon has a huge scientific offering to give us and more than we'd ever really understood before. At the same time, we also are starting to think internationally about um, other aspects of the way that space comes into our economic sphere and as we go as we go beyond low earth orbit and into the cosmos, the first place we come to is the moon and If we want to live and work sustainably off world anywhere, we are going to have to do that using the resources that we find locally and so there's more and more work beginning now to to understand what resources are available on the moon and how we might use them. And some of the recent scientific discoveries have shown us that there are potential resources on the moon that we need to understand and explore better. So the most obvious of those would be the presence of water ice, which is trapped in very cold areas at the poles. And this water ice, I mean, water is obviously useful on its its own, um, but it's also a source of hydrogen and oxygen, which is propellant. It's rocket fuel. So it could be that you know, very close to home, we have a, a, a station for fuel that would take us on elsewhere in the solar system, support our exploration activities in the Earth-Moon system. So a big part of what's happening now is about understanding the resources of the Moon and learning how to use those to support exploration and for potentially for other applications later. And if we want to learn how to use the resources of space generally, that's where we're going to have to do it first. And also if we want to think about missions going on to Mars and elsewhere in the solar system, we have to learn how to live and work off-world, off-Earth. We've never done that before. The Apollo missions were very short. And now if we're thinking about long-duration missions on other planetary bodies, whether that's the Moon or Mars or who knows beyond, the lessons that we need to learn about how to do that, how to keep humans um, alive and thriving in this environment, The moon is the place we will go to learn how to do that. And so that's really, people are positioning themselves internationally for the the roles that they would like to have in this, what is really going to be an endeavour that our species undertake.
0: That was moon expert at the European Space Agency, James Carpenter there, and we'll be discussing the notions of humans living off-world as well as examining the cataclysmic risks facing our planet on the next episode. Indeed, next time we'll be considering the demise or the extinction of our own species. Farewell humanity is the theme, and we'll have a host of guests on the show to try and see things from beyond our own existence. I'll be speaking to philosophers Ben Ware and Emanuele Coccia, Tom Hughes of the Eco Health Alliance in Malaysia epidemiologist Anne lodi Marta Bofito, a consultant physician and HIV-AIDS specialist, and theatre director and playwright Tiago Rodriguez. This podcast is brought to you by Triennale Milano. It was written and presented by me, David Pleasant, and it was produced by the Triennale Milano team. Sound editing and design was by Alex Portfelix and the theme music was created by John Arnold of Superdrama.